0: I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Uh, King Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you, uh, you love us, you like us, you desire us, you see us, you pursue us, you died for us, you rose for us, you ascended for us, you will come again for us. And for that, we're so grateful. And for those who don't know what it is to be in relationship with you who might be here this morning. I pray that you would feel so welcomed, and so welcomed not only by us, but by you, that you've longed for them, that you've seen them, that you knew on a random summer Sunday that they'd be sitting in this seat hearing about you, and I thank you for that reality, that you care about them more than they care about themselves, and that you are for us, not against us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so uh, if you guys have Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 9. Uh, we will be starting in verse 30. Uh, before we get there, I just want to remind us where we've been in the book of Romans. Uh, so far, uh, in the book of Romans, a series called Gospel Depth, um, Paul has been writing to a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And he's unpacking the gospel for both of them as good news. And so we, we get to listen into this letter. And as we've listened into this letter, we learned a lot about the nature and character of God. We've learned that the gospel is good news, and it's good news because we live in a world full of a lot of bad news. We live in a world, theologians would call this world a fallen world. That even if you're an atheist, you know this world is not as it should be. There's something in you that goes, it shouldn't be like this. Every cry for justice is, it shouldn't be like this. Where do we get that from? If we're just, you know, randomly, you know, uh, you know atheistic evolution, we, we, we're basically just highly evolved animals. Where do we get a desire for justice my dog Poppy is cute. He doesn't have a desire for justice. But we all know that in this world, it is not the way it should be. And Paul's described, he's kind of unveiled or revealed what's been going on in human history. And Paul has described how humanity has rejected God, who is our, our, not only our creator, but he's our, our, our soul's life source and anchor. But as a human race, we have sought to do our own thing. And instead of love God and love people, we worry about getting what we want when we want it. And this has been disastrous for our souls. And not just our souls, but the large systems we are a part of. Family systems and neighborhoods and workplaces and economic systems and governments and corporations. The world's broken because we're broken. The world's full of sin because we are full of sin by nature. We were created to love God, which is worship, and love others. But instead, as the human race, just like ancient Israel, we have given ourselves over to idolatry instead of worship and injustice instead of love. And it has led to everything from the breakdown of the family to nations at war. Paul says that humanity in in that space, we are lost. And over thousands of years, humanity walked in that lostness. And over time, God raised up a people, the nation of Israel. By the way, not to be confused with the nation state of Israel today. They are separate things. But an ethnic group, the nation of Israel, to show people who God was by how they lived and loved. But they kept failing over and over again. And so finally, God sent Jesus to find us, to perfectly reveal to us what God is like. Jesus has come to save us to reconcile us back to God, that we might live the life we were designed to live, a life of worship and wonder, a life in the presence, love, and generosity of God, an abundant life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, a life with God where anything is possible and everything is as it should be. I don't care what your religious background is, that should sound pretty freeing. Paul says Jesus lived, died, and rose again to make that possible. And that if we trust in what Jesus did for us, what the scriptures call faith, we can be reconciled to the God. It's the opposite of what we did originally. Instead of walking away, we walk back to him. We, instead of trusting ourselves, we trust him. That Jesus will undo the brokenness, not just undo what's broken and sinful and, and not as it should be, but he will make it beautiful and perfect. And then as we've moved, uh, that's kind of the beginning of the book, then we move into Romans chapter 5 to 8, and there are so many blessings for those who are reconciled to God through Jesus. Paul has unpacked them for three straight chapters, Romans 5 through 8, which is technically four chapters, I just realized. <laughs> and he said we don't have to earn them or work for them. All these blessings, they're a gift. They're a part of being reconciled to God. They're a part of being saved, a word we're going to use a lot today. They're a gift, things like a new hope. A new father, a new power to change, a new identity, a new perspective, a new security. This, this reality that nothing can separate us from the love of God if we are in Jesus. And on and on it goes. And to be honest, at this point of the letter, Paul assumes it probably seems too good to be true, this gospel message. The world is so broken, it's our fault, and Jesus makes it right and gifts it to us. That, that deal is too good. He gets all the sin and wrath, and we get all of the blessing in peace. And at this point, an objection to his, uh, his message would be obvious to his original hearers. They're already kind of like, this seems too good to be true. Last week, I used the analogy, as we move into Romans 9 through 11, I used the analogy of uh, s- uh, someone, um, uh, someone, uh, an entrepreneur who's uh, moving towards an investor. And they're, they're saying to the investor, hey man, would you invest into this into this business? And, 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 and the investor going, I've actually, I think I've invested before here, um, what, what happened with the last business, right? Like, like, I know you want to start a hamburger joint, but like you, you, you had a taco place before, like, like, I'm not saying it was all your fault, but we need to talk about what happened. It's almost as if, as, as if people would say, man, I thought God had a covenant people before called Israel and they, I thought nothing could separate them from his love. And it seems like they've been separated from his love. And now we got this new covenant thing. It already sounds too good to be true. And then I look at the tre- I look back at the track record of God and you know, I'm not calling God a liar, but, but I almost wonder, like, did, did he actually do what he promised to do the first time? And so that's why Paul, get, he's now going to talk about Israel. It's not a random thing. He, he gets into Israel's history. And last week we looked at Romans chapter 9, which is a, a mini walk through the Old Testament and how God related to people throughout history that were truly his. Um, and so, uh, and again, we saw that it wasn't the race of those in Israel that made them his people. It was those who trusted him and put their faith in him. Yes, God revealed himself to the world through Israel, but not all of Israel was God's people, was Paul's point. But some of them were. Some of them were really saved. And today, Paul's going to explain how salvation works. Uh, again, he's doing it as part of his answer to the subjection. why couldn't God save Israel? That's, that's who he's talking to originally, but there's a lot we can learn and glean from as we listen into that conversation in terms of how salvation works in general. Does that make sense? Um, So we're going to use the word salvation a lot today, which is a word today uh, that unfortunately has been kind of hijacked, and for a lot of us it connotates connotates like sad religion, people yelling at you with with pictures of fire at the Del Mar Fair, and and I just want to say like that's such a bummer because salvation rightly understood and experienced, there's nothing like it. So we need to talk about salvation, one, because it's a biblical word. The answer to, to, to the abuse of a word is not to throw it out. It's, it's, it's not to get rid of it. It's, it's proper. It's right use. It's right use. Um, the word for saved, not the word for salvation, but the word for saved in Greek, it's the word sozo. Sozo. Uh, it's not in English. It's a uh, Greek transliteration. Sozo is a Greek word. Uh, it means to save, to heal, to deliver. Uh, the word is used over a hundred times in the New Testament to refer to kind of the, the whole package of salvation, deliverance, and healing. For instance, in the story of the ten lepers in Luke 17, nine got cleansed of their leprosy, and the one that went back to Jesus praising God for his healing was a uh, cleansing kind of made whole. And so salvation is, is rescuing, healing, and delivering. And if there's ever a thing this world needs, it's rescuing, healing, and delivering. But again, just like because we're broken, the world's broken, um, we need to be delivered, healed and rescued to see the world experience that same thing. So I have a couple points today uh, on the topic of salvation that I think we can learn from this text. Three points. uh, They are these. Number one, salvation is for the unlikely. Number two, salvation is for the unrighteous. And number three, salvation is for the uncomplicated. For the unlikely, the unrighteous, and the uncomplicated. So again, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 30, okay? Verse 30. And the the CSB, which is Christ's uh, standard Bible. Is that too much? Probably is. All right, here we go. Romans 9.30, it says this, verse 30. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. By the way, as a Gentile, this is great news to me. Namely, the righteousness that comes from Faith. Now, at this time, uh, pull out real quick, at this time, uh, there was serious racism and nationalism built into the Jewish faith at this time in Israel. Um, It was very common for Jewish people back then to look down on Gentiles, very common in rabbinical teaching to look down on Gentiles. There are recorded rabbinical prayers that would have been uh, like you you would use it as a prayer book, almost like the Book of Common Prayer the Anglican Church has, or like a Catholic hymnal, like a hymnal. And it said, you know, thank God I'm not like these dogs. They called Gentiles dogs. It's a lesson human talking down to. And so um, this idea that Gentiles could be brought in would not have been cool, would not have been kosher with a lot of these people. Um, even though God says in the Old Testament that he, this is what's crazy, he chose Israel because they were the weakest nation. He actually says that in the Old Testament. It was because they weren't better than anybody else that he picked them but they somehow, as humans do, we turned it into a, they turned it into a, it's because we're amazing. Many of the Jews in Paul's day, of whom Paul was one of them, would have lost their mind if you said ethnically, uh, ethnic Gentiles could be saved, while some ethnically Jewish people might be lost. But God always rescues and redeems the unlikely. It's always been this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, this is even a new covenant reality. It says, instead, God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. This is the problem with Christianity that like, makes you look good and rich and powerful and, and claims that's what it's all about. That's not what the scriptures say. It's a call to follow Jesus into pain and persecution and weakness. One of the things the pandemic has revealed is a lot of the Western church's inability to suffer. It's also revealed that we think we're above things, we're very entitled. By the way, this is also why the idea of self righteous Christians is so repugnant to God. No one may boast in his presence, it's ridiculous. Salvation is an act of rescuing. You don't brag about being rescued. If you've actually been rescued before where you thought you were going to die and a first responder saved your life, you're like, I'm so awesome, I got rescued. A lot of the Jews at that time, and many religious people today, even people who claim to be followers of Jesus, they view salvation as an achievement you earn, not a rescue you experience. So critically wrong. but it's an unexpected people. Man, it really has always been that way. Um, one of my buddies, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy and Jessica are in the back. Uh, I've known Jessica since she was 15. I've known Jimmy uh, since middle school. Uh, I've known them a long time, and, um, and uh, there was a, a girl we went to high school with, and about 14 years ago now, I was the, one of the college pastors at, at the Rock Church uh, in Point Loma, and uh, I'll never forget it, man. This girl walked in and uh, she didn't know I was, like, leading the ministry. Uh, she just saw me in the lobby downstairs. I was, like, helping greet because we were short of volunteer or something. So I'm greeting, and she just looks at me, and she says, Andy Rogers, you're the last person I'd expect to see here. I was like, what? she's like, at church. I was like, that's fair. Then she watched me get up and preach for 40 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, I was like you're, uh, in the words of Maria Orta, you're not wrong. But Jesus has done something in my life. I'm becoming a different person progressively. And, yeah, that guy should not be up here. But let me tell you about this. This Jesus, this is what he does. If you're a Christian, you take yourself real seriously, relax. Take Jesus seriously. All right, we'll keep going. Verse 31, it says, But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were by works. Again, they didn't experience salvation because they were trying to obtain it through the law or their own moral performance. They viewed the law wrongly, Paul's saying. Jesus and Paul were both not, were, neither of them were anti-law. He's actually gonna quote Moses throughout this passage going, Moses was into grace, if you read the law right. Um, and, uh, and so they were trying to obtain it through moral performance, essentially. They're reading the law as a performance to do... Rather than a reality to live in. Again, everyone has a standard of righteousness, by the way, even atheists, right? Uh, there is right and there is wrong, and those who do wrong are considered unrighteous. We, we know this. Everyone has a morality. What it's based on, it's, it's always, it's kind of hard to know, but it's always there. Um, Aziz Ansari recently had a stand up special where he mentioned that he couldn't tell the majority of the jokes he told in his first 2010 comedy special because of how much society has changed. Um, Again, as humans, we often believe that there is a moral performance in the eyes of people, but ultimately in the eyes of God that makes us right or wrong. We have to determine if we are right or wrong. Every major religion in the world teaches this besides the gospel of Jesus. And because these Jews thought salvation was by works and not faith, something happens, we see at the end of verse 32. It says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Uh, what does that mean? We'll find out in verse 33. Verse 33, as it is written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, the stumbling stone is Jesus. Um, everyone who believes they are saved by their works or good deeds will be offended by the cross. I don't care what religion they are or if they're an atheist. If, if someone is self-righteous and they think I'm defined by my moral performance... The idea that you're so bad, Jesus had to die for you is infuriating. Even if you've got the Tim Keller at the end, you know, he, he, but you're so loved, he was glad to die for you. They don't care. I'm not bad, right? Who you call him bad? This isn't a, just an Israel thing. This is, this is everybody. By, by, by nature, all of us are self-righteous. The super fundamentalist religious guy that's yelling at people. And the super intense progressive person who's yelling at people—it's self-righteousness. The cross is a stumbling block for two reasons. Uh, one is it's it's too good uh, for those. Who, there's some people who think they're too good to need it. That'd be the self-righteous, right? I just mentioned. But for some of us, it's also some of us think it's too. We think we look at our story and we go, "I'm too bad for it to work." It's not going to take with me. It's not that I'm too good for it. I know I'm bad. I'm just too bad. My family's too bad. But Isaiah is like, I'm a man with unclean lips that comes from a people with unclean lips. So think about my family or my nation or my, my, my ethnicity or my uh, my personality or my sin you know, I look at all these different things, I see the sin in all of them. Wh- whatever your story is, your, your backstory, you look at it and you go, Oh man. I'm unrighteous. I'm too bad. You have self-contempt. I just want to say, you're not. Most of the stories in the Bible are people who are ridiculous that God loves. The only hero is Jesus. All he does is love people who are not not righteous. Which leads me to point number two, that salvation is for the unrighteous. Salvation is for the unrighteous. Pick it up in verse 1, Romans chapter 10. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Like they're pumped up about the idea of God, the concept of God, but they don't actually know him. It's a lot of like awkward, you know, if you, you look, look at like a youth camp, a lot of the eighth grader, what they're talking about. It's that kind of thing. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. So, man, zealous, excited, passionate, woefully uninformed. Again, they try to achieve righteousness on their own terms. They're even zealously trying really hard to please God. Uh, It reminds me of a time I was watching uh, my boys play basketball. And when they first started playing basketball, they were in a 5-7 to league. And 5-7, uh, to seven, it, there's, it's always, I mean, there's a lot of traveling going on. They should just hand out passports at the beginning of the game. Like, you guys are all traveling. You're all going places. You guys are phenomenal running backs, right? Uh, they don't call travels. They don't call double dribbles. Um, and, uh, but I'll never forget, um, we watched this kid, man, uh, probably the best player on the team at the time. He got, like, a ferocious rebound, held it, you know, uh, took it up court, full head of steam, coast to coast, beautiful layup. Would have been, like, high school level layup. Um, one of the more skilled players on the team, and it didn't count. Do you know why? Because he scored it in the other team's basket. It should have been a quick putback, but instead he was just doing too much. And, and, and the assumption of many Jews was that they could earn their righteousness or salvation by the law, and they were even zealous about it, but they were doing it the wrong way. going to touch that either all right verse four for christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes since moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law the one who does these things will live by them but the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven that is to bring christ down or who will go down into the abyss that is to bring christ up from the dead on the contrary what does it say the message is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. At the end, when Paul talks about the message being close to your heart, he's quoting Deuteronomy. He's essentially saying that just as Moses brought the law down to them, they didn't climb up into heaven. God revealed himself to Moses on a mountain, and Moses brought the law down to them. If, if, if you didn't if you go up to get the law, you're not going to go up to get grace. If you didn't go up to get the law, you're not going to go up to get God. By the way, family, aren't you glad we don't have to climb into the heights to find God? A big part of the gospel story is this reality that Jesus has come—he's come down to find us. When I think about my own story, when I think about my own—I had a about two weeks ago—I um, was falling asleep and I just felt like I had a wave of guilt and shame. Like everything I regretted in the last twenty years was like back. And I just started to feel like, man, I, I'm am a mess. Uh, could God could God really love me? Could could can I trust myself? Who who am I? And I started thinking about all of these things that were all unrelated, all way different times in my life, and I realized, oh man, it's this is spiritual attack. But 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 even if even if the, the reason why it came up was spiritual attack, it's still true that I did all those things. And as I consider them, I'm just so aware I, I don't deserve Jesus at all. I don't deserve salvation at all. I'm so glad he came for me. I could not get to him. Which leads to my last point. Um, salvation is for the uncomplicated. Salvation is for the uncomplicated. Pick it up at the end of verse 8. It says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, mouth, resulting in salvation. For The scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here's what I mean by salvation is for the uncomplicated. Um, It's faith. If you're like, I don't know how to figure out 613 laws in the Old Testament, there's a bunch of, you know, it's faith. The standard of righteousness in our culture keeps changing every two seconds. It's it's faith. You're, You're not it, but He's got you. You can trust Him. It's simple for us, it's hard for Jesus. It's uncomplicated for us. it is complicated for Jesus. It's by faith, it's by trust. You realize you need rescuing, and then you can't do it yourself, and you call out for the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Uh, Michael Eaton, a commentator, says this about saving faith. He says, saving faith, is a, uh, there's three things uh, he lays out. Saving faith is a matter of responding to God's word. We have to respond. It's not automatic. So when people say, man, I, I was born into a Christian home, that's great, um, but you still have to make a choice to respond to God's word, whether you were five or 15 or 50 or whatever it is, uh, no one's born a Christian, okay? Uh, that's when, when things got out of hand in Europe, like, you know, 200 years ago, uh, one of the worst things that happens in the history of the church is, they basically said, if you were born in this nation, they believed in Christian nations, there is no such thing, uh, nations don't get saved. Nations can't put their faith in Jesus, uh, but then what they started to say was is they got bought, they bought into that so much. I'm not saying a nation can't be impacted by whatever a Judeo-Christian worldview. I'm just saying like 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 it's a Christian, whatever. You get it. New Covenant. What happened though is that if you're born here, if you're born in Switzerland, you're a Christian. If you're born in France, you're Catholic. You know, if you're born here, um, and, and no, you have to respond personally and individually. There's a corporate reality of the gospel, but it requires a personal response. So it, 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 there's a response component. Um, it involves accepting that Jesus is Lord, that he's in charge of your life, that Jesus is alive. Um, there is content to saving faith. I love this next part. It is believing that certain things are true and trustworthy. Faith is not a leap into the dark. It is a leap into the light. I'm saying I actually do know something. A lot of times our culture, you know, we view faith uh, people will just view faith as, oh, like a, you know, a leap of faith. Where you like jump into the darkness. No, no, this is I found something secure for the first time ever. It's Jesus. It's not the church. It's not how excited I am, how zealous I am. Remember, there was zeal without knowledge. It's I know that Jesus is who he said he was, and I am following him. Faith involves trustful conviction. To believe in the heart means that you are convinced. It is not, it's not simply understanding an idea. It's not just cognitive assent, in other words. Uh, the, the best analogy I've heard for this is similar to, like, medicine. Uh, you can say you understand the efficacy of a medicine all day long for a sickness you have. Um, but the medicine does you no good unless you take it. Uh, faith is taking the medicine. It's not just going, Jesus died for people, I think. It's he died for me. I'm trusting in what he did on the cross and in his resurrection to count for me. I'm trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to save me, to rescue me, to sozo me, to deliver me, to heal me, to keep me safe. Those who call in Jesus will never be put to shame. Now, I was going to um, tell a bunch of conversion stories this morning to remind you of how good salvation is from church history. I was preparing to tell you the story of a a North African sex addict who would get saved and become a guy by the name of St. Augustine. It's a good story. You should look it up. Or the conversion story of a slave named Frederick Douglass who would become one of the greatest intellectuals in the history of the world and how Jesus' salvation freed him spiritually and empowered him to fight for the freedom of others physically. His faith was wild. Or the story of how a kid from a broken family in South San Diego became your pastor. All right? Those are good stories. I was preparing to tell you those kinds of stories, but I felt the Holy Spirit, like, nudge me last night. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, I'm going out on a limb here, uh, honestly. Um, but I felt uh, reminded of a story I read a long time ago. Um, it was about Charles Spurgeon, and uh, he was, like, 18 when he had his first pastorate. When you read what he wrote at 18, you're like, we need to educate better. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> but he, um, he was preaching a sermon, and his grandfather was also a preacher, his dad was, but his, his grandfather walked in, and he was preaching the gospel, and he just kept saying, whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. And his grandfather said, um, tell them again, Charles. And he said it again. And he said, tell them again, Charles. Tell them again, Charles. And, and here's the deal. It's easy to forget how Jesus has saved us. Um, like Israel worshiping a golden calf 40 days after the parting of the Red Sea and their liberation. Like, ah, whatever golden calf we can do that in our life we can take for granted so great a salvation and i felt like this morning we're supposed to remind each other again of how jesus saved us how he sozoed us um whenever we do baptisms we always ask a couple of theological questions to help people confess with their mouth that jesus is lord and determine that they believe that he rose from the dead but we also ask some heart questions Uh, i actually have those questions Uh, scott would you come up here Uh, um, we always ask them these questions. Why are you grateful for Jesus? How have you experienced this salvation? What has he saved you from? What has he saved you into? Uh, I know some of you guys have experienced Jesus forgiving you for things you never thought possible. Some of you have experienced Jesus take away your shame tied to things done to you. Some of you experienced Jesus accepting you when you thought no one else could. Some of you experienced salvation from perfectionism or addictions. So if you experienced being forgiven and then forgiving someone else, and that transformed a significant relationship in your life? There is a lot of so-so moments walking around the room that we can just forget about and miss. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about talking to other people about Jesus, but I think we need to talk to ourselves about Jesus first. It's rewriting my history. covers me with destiny